Well, all right. I hope you're ready to buckle up and fly like on a Concorde jet plane again tonight. Except we're, yeah, except, sorry, that's a bad example. We're not going to, we're not going to crash. Uh, this is one of my earliest mission trip memories when I was in, uh, I guess I was 11 is the first time dad ever took me with him on the mission trip over to Steyr, Austria. And we flew through Paris to get there and flew back through Paris on the way back. And in between going and coming is when the, that Concorde crash, that final Concorde crash had happened. And so, um, kind of interesting thing. So, uh, here's what we're going to do tonight. The, the cheat sheet for tonight is the same one we've had the last couple weeks, so there's nothing nothing new there. If, if for some reason yours has gotten misplaced, you don't have it, feel free to uh, uh, let me know. I'm always happy to, to email it to you, or you can grab it. I'm pretty sure we upload these online, but want to go back to what we've seen in the book of Jude and what we started two weeks ago, which is to dive a little deeper into this idea of uh, the one true faith, because here is the reality Um, you can spend your entire life trying to keep up with the amount of counterfeit gospels that are out there. And uh, the, the other reality is if you're on the cutting edge of heresy, it's because you're the heretic, right? If you're on the cutting edge of what's out there, the only possible way you can be on the very front line of heresy is because you're the one coming up with it, putting it out. So uh, there's always the classic example. Pastors have used it a million times. I've used it. How does the FBI train their counterfeit squad? They don't train them to look at every counterfeit bill. They train them to know the real dollar bill so well that they can sniff out what a fake is because they know the real thing so well. And that's, and that's if, if you go back to where we finished out Sunday with Jude, that's precisely one of the three primary ways Jude tells us to contend for the faith. It's not you've got to have a systematic theology degree from seminary, otherwise you're just going to be thrown to the wolves. Now, you may need to know more than what you currently know. Sometimes I think we as churches have done a, we, we have focused so hard on, let us help you know how the Bible gives you three steps to have a, a harmonious marriage, and there's need for that. There's also need for you to know why it really matters. Jesus is fully God and fully man and how you can rest assured that he is based on the scriptures. Um, Because I promise you this, if he's not fully God or fully man, then the three steps we taught you to have a harmonious marriage aren't going to work because those three steps are going to be predicated on the salvation that only Jesus can bring if he's fully God or fully man. So you don't have to have a a systematic theology degree. You just got to have the word. And I've, I've shared that that story uh, several weeks ago, I'll come back to it. There was a pastor by the name of Rob Bell, who really, I, there's no reason in, in most evangelical circles, he would, he would really come up unless you're having a talk on, on heretics. He's the one who came out about a decade ago, wrote a book called Love Wins. And in that book, he offers up the idea that this, I, this Christian notion of an, a literal eternal hell where those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior uh, justly suffer for their sin for, for eternity, uh, that, that's just not a biblical idea. That's not really there. There's all sorts of questions. And why? Because ultimately God is love. Love wins in the end. It's, it's a twist. And the truth is God is love. The truth is love does win. But you've applied it in a way that goes beyond uh, how Scripture goes there. And I shared, he, he back in the mid-2000s, he had these videos called NUMA, and they were these real cutting-edge-of-their-time videos. And, and it's not that I ever heard him at that time say something in those videos that just went, oh my goodness, that's heresy. He didn't. But there was just something off. And I always felt as a teenager, like, well, what do I know as a 16-year-old? I mean, obviously, other people have watched this. They think it's okay. Maybe I'm just being too harsh. Maybe I'm just being too critical. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, but something was just off in my spirit about it. Of course, fast forward. It's like, oh, that's what's off. Now, how did I as a 16, 16, I hadn't, I hadn't read a systematic theology textbook yet. I didn't have, I didn't even have a high school diploma, much less my college and my seminary diplomas. Now, the reason there is a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is because three years prior, I had been challenged that, if, that I would need wisdom to live and move and breathe and walk with the Lord in this world. And the way that I was going to 
really grow and have that wisdom and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership was by um, seeking to daily be in the Word. And so at 13, all I knew to do was go, well, I've got this 15-minute break in between this class and lunch, so I'll go get alone. I'm going to read two chapters of the Bible, uh, think about what does those two chapters say, and then whatever time I have left over before lunch, I'll pray. That is solely how the li- my life in quiet time started. It wasn't an hour-long quiet time. It wasn't observe, interpret, apply. It was just, I know I need to read it. What, what was key there is there was a pure heart that knew Lord, I need you. So all this to say, to bring it back, it is pivotal that we as believers, no matter what our level of theological education or how long we've been a believer or not, that we come to the Lord with a pure heart that says, Lord, I desperately need to build up myself in your most holy faith. And that's not going to happen outside of being in the word, feeding on it, and then living it out. And so I'll say, You've got to know the main thing if you're going to be able to tell it apart. And what we've, what we've said and how I've tried to phrase it for us is when we talk, Jude says, uh, we're contending for the faith. We've said this is the, the one and only true faith. And that's how I've defined it, is, an abs- is the absolute objective faith handed down authoritatively by God, meaning we didn't come up with it as humans. God came to us with it and he said, this is who I am and this is how things are. And it doesn't matter what you think about who I am or how things are. If, if you think differently, you're wrong. God authoritatively handed it down. Uh, the faith is perfectly revealed in and by Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, God in the flesh. The faith is in, inerrantly recorded by the Holy Spirit through men, through human authors. That would be the scriptures. In the absolute and objective faith, it's been clearly revealed and it's been sovereignly protected by God for people to believe or reject. We say, well, what, okay, if this is, if this is kind of how, how the, the faith is revealed, well, what is the faith? We've, we've said it's a cohesive story, a meta-narrative, or this would be the biblical worldview. This is what we looked at two, two weeks ago. The story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, glory. There's this fourfold story that, that runs the whole gambit. And, and honestly, there is a sense in which the whole of Scripture really is a story. Now, not a story like Aesop's fables or Mother Goose's nursery rhymes or Once Upon a Time f- fairy tales, but a story in the sense of the bulk of, the bulk of Scripture is actually historical narrative in, in genre because God's story isn't some fairy tale. It's real happening in the actual reality of time. He's really parted a a real Red Sea in real history. Jesus really died on a real cross in real history, which by default means Jesus really saves in present real history and Jesus is really literally returning in our real history whether in our lifetime or the generations to come behind us. There's a cohesive story, but as you walk through this story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, glory, what becomes apparent is there is a clear doctrine. There are clear truths about who God is, about who humans are, about what the problem between God and humans is. By the way, that's obviously when I phrase it that way, it's a problem with humans, not with God what the solution, God's solution to that problem is, what that solution does to the one who embraces it. All of these, there is a clear doctrine. And so what, what, the, what churches have tried to do, and if you have that cheat sheet, what is on your cheat sheet is what we call historically the Apostles' Creed. Now there's, in the early church, there's several times people have come together and they, and they put together these creeds. Most, many of the times the creeds were in response to heresies. Okay, someone's causing trouble. They're saying something we know is not true. We've got to officially respond to it. But the reason I give you the Apostles' Creed, it is one of the most succinct, basic overviews of the key doctrinal points we cannot argue on as revealed in the Word of God. I also give it to you because it was invented for people living in a day when they didn't have printing presses. 
and many didn't have print copies of the scriptures. And education was limited in terms of, well, I'm going to go to your educate, your seminary education was your church. And so this was written in such a way that people could remember it. That's also part of why I give it to you. It shows you how far we've come, maybe how far we've fallen as people, because most of us will look at that and go, oh my goodness, I can't memorize those 12, those 12 lines. Don't worry, just let's set it to some music and listen to it every day and you'll have it. I'll be down. But here's, here's, let's walk through it. And I'll give you some scriptures to go with it. First line, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Here's what it tells you. It says doctrinal truth, there is God. There's one God, okay? So Deuteronomy, here's where that's, here's a primary place that's pulling from, Deuteronomy chapter six. If I can turn there. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Meaning that there is one true God, singular. There's not multiple gods. There's not multiple versions of God. There is one true, objective, actual God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now you say, well, why is specifically the Father mentioned right there? Well, let's go back. What do we say? The one true faith, authoritatively delivered by God, perfectly revealed in Jesus. Scriptures say, Hebrews chapter one, that Jesus is the perfect revelation. He is God himself. He came in flesh. And so when you and I ask the question, what is God like? Jesus. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. How does Jesus teach us to relate to God? Father. Our Father in heaven. Pray this way. Father, I have kept them in your name. So part of where they're pulling in this is the primary way, the first person of the Trinity, the triune God, is revealed in Scripture is as Father. Now look what it says there, maker of heaven and earth. Well, where do we get that? Right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, the one true God, created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 1 proceeds to describe God creating, which means, uh, and, 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 and we'll come, and I, I won't have you turn here yet, we'll, we'll, um, because we're going to go there here in a second, uh, but Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is one of several places when specifically looking at Jesus, we discover that Jesus specifically was the one who brought all creation about. He created everything for him. We find the purpose of creation. It's, it's for the glory of God. So we understand that there is one true God who created heaven and earth. By heaven and earth, we don't just mean earth and outer space. We know from scripture, it means the visible, created, tangible universe that we send satellites up into that take pictures billions of light years back. And we I saw a video that said they, we, we asked the scientists guesstimate that the edge of the universe is 46 and a half billion light years away from earth. The seen, the physical universe, the heavens being that unseen, the spiritual, the supernatural realm where we know heaven is a real place, where hell is a real place, where God in the fullness of his glory chooses to reside presently and angels are there and, 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 God created heaven and earth. Then it says this, second line, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So if you got your Bibles, flip over to Colossians chapter one. And as you flip to Colossians one, you can just write this one down, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a pit stop in John one. John one says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So here's what John 1 tells us, that the word is a name for a person. And this person, when it said his person was in the beginning, he wasn't created at the beginning, he was there at the beginning, implying he was before the beginning. And not only was he there before the beginning, but it says he was with God. And that 
construction in Greek literally is he was face to face with God, which implies this person, the word, is as a person, someone unique and distinct and not God is in the Father. But then it says, this person, the word, is God. These are, this is Trinity language. We've talked about the Trinity before. Our God is one God, one being, three distinct, co-equal, unable to be separated, unique persons. Not one being who appears three different ways, one being, three unique persons, a triune being. And you go, but pastor, wow, that's tough to understand. Yes, because there is not another being in all creation, seen or unseen, that is triune. It's above all of our pay grade, angels included. By the way, there's a great, I, I didn't bring it tonight, I need to. We found this, these great little like toddler uh, board books at Mardell that are, that are um, it's literally called Little Seminary. <laughs> and it's on the Trinity. And it is the best, most basic because it's written for a three-year-old to understand what the Trinity is clearly. It's not going to ever answer every question you got because, again, we're not triune, so we can't understand all of God. But it's a great, I'll have to bring it sometime. Maybe just one night, I'll just read it to you. And uh, you'll all, we'll all walk away with a, a much better understanding than probably all of the intense books that all the scholars have written that use language even I don't understand sometimes. So you see this in John chapter one. John chapter one says that everything that came into being came through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. In him was life. You get over here to Colossians chapter one, where, uh, where you should be waiting for me. Let me catch up here. Colossians chapter one, speaking about Jesus, says this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn there, you and I in 21st century English vernacular will take that to mean, oh, well, he was created. That's not what firstborn means in the Greek, which we're translating. It means he is the heir. He is the rightful recipient of everything. Everything belongs to him. In ancient culture, second born didn't get the inheritance. The firstborn got the inheritance. Put it to you this way. Uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth died. Who became king? Not the second born, the firstborn has nothing to do with the act of someone being born as if being created. It has to do with a, pl a place of preeminence, of authority. He is the rightful heir and therefore ruler of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. Jesus is the person of the Trinity who did all of the acting of creating. It all came about through him. It's all, look at it, it says, for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. It's a similar line to Hebrews chapter one, where it says, Jesus, by the word of his power, is what sustains the continued existence of all creation. We view that from a scientific lens as things like the laws of gravity, the laws of electromagnetism. But the only reason those are constants that hold our universe together is because Jesus, by the word of his power, says them. They are the scientific expressions of the theological true reality that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. It also says this, he is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of, the, of God to dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so it tells us that Jesus is fully God. And then you turn over to a place, go back, um, you may just have to flip about two pages to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, and we're gonna pick up in verse five. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, so although he is fully God, he did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be grasped, meaning uh, he didn't regard his equality with God, his being God as something to, and this is crazy. He's God. And I'm not gonna lord my Godhood over you when I come amongst you. 
that alone we could stop and just meditate on for tonight and blow the rest of it off till next week, and that would be enough to cause probably all of us to have to really do some confession before the Lord tonight. Jesus coming in the flesh, coming amongst us, said, I, am, I, it's all, I made all of this, and all of it belongs to me. All of it is for me. I have absolute right over all of it, and I'm not going to lord my godhood over you. Instead, I will have come to serve you and to give my life as a ransom to buy you back out of the slavery to sin you chose that is an active act of rebellion and hostility against me and my glory. How did he do that? Well, look what it says. But he emptied himself, meaning he chose not to rely on his deity. And you've heard me use the goofy example that what we mean by that is Jesus in his humanity, when he's in the carpenter shop with Joseph, learning the family trade, and he gets that saw out and he cuts himself. He doesn't do a quick look around to make sure nobody's looking and then heal himself. He would go, dadgummit, that hurt. I feel the pain of that. I got to go get a Band-Aid and stitch it up, or I don't know what the first century form of, of, of bandage wrapping would have been. Um, they don't teach you what that is for everyday cuts in seminary. Uh, but look what else it says. It says that taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it uses specific language there that Jesus became 100% fully physically human with weaknesses and frailties to hunger, to fatigue, even to death. Where his humanity was unique from ours is he was not the offspring of a biological male and female to whom a sin nature was inherited. We don't get a choice. Every one of us has got a mom and a dad. And because of our mom and our dad, we are from the moment of conception broken sinners. Jesus was, and you'll look back, look back actually, look back at the next little thing, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was birthed supernaturally, and part of that supernatural birth is he's fully human like us, but he is without the sin nature like us. He is something different, what we failed to be. And it says he humbled himself, going to death under a cross. And so look, look back at the, 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 the creed with me. So he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, which is recorded in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1. It's prophesied in Isaiah 7, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, we're going to look at this a little bit Sunday, but let me just give you a simple importance of that statement. Jesus lived the life we fail to live. He died the death we rightfully deserve. On a cross, according to Scripture, on a tree cursed by God, he mentions under Pontius Pilate, he was buried, meaning he fully died. And he did it all in real human history. It happened. If you could make a time machine and we could go plop in it and go back 2,000 some odd years ago, we would find all of those events happening just like the Bible says they happened. It's not myth. It's not been mythologized by later disciples and built up into something it originally wasn't. It is intangible history. And then it says, descended into hell, rose again from the dead on the third day. Now, some will take that again. This creed is not the Bible. This creed is an attempt by the early church to summarize what is the one true faith in such a way that you and I as believers can remember it. So some will take that statement descended into hell to mean Jesus died on the cross and then he went down to hell and suffered for three days before he was ascended. That's not what scripture teaches. And I'll tell you really, there's a lot of reasons why, but let me give you the most simplest. Jesus on the cross says, tetelestai, it is finished. At the point that Jesus says, it is finished, every last drop of God's wrath on sin has been paid. Because the next thing Jesus does is die. So if Jesus says the work of redemption, the work of me paying the price for sin is done, well, what is hell? Hell's the place where you pay the price for sin. There's, there, he wouldn't go to hell to pay a price he's already paid. 
It also conflicts with the fact that when he's on the cross and one of those thieves says, you really are the Lord, what does Jesus say to him? Not, I'll see you in paradise in three days. I'll see you in paradise today. So descended into hell there does not mean Jesus went down into hell and suffered. What it does mean is he paid the complete and total and full price that hell reflects for our sin. Every last drop of the wrath of God that my sin deserves, he paid. And on the third day, he rose again. It says he ascended into heaven. Philippians 2 records, mentions this. He's seated at the right hand of, of God the Father Almighty who will come again to judge the living and the dead. So here comes this, here comes this truth. We, Jesus, Jesus didn't just do all this. He did all this and he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's gonna deal for one final time with those who have chosen wicked, wickedness, those who have chosen sin, those who have chosen unbelief, and those who have chosen to faith, to believe, to rest in who he is. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity. I'll just remind you, and, and again, we're just doing this basic overview with this tonight, so we're not going to all of it, but the Holy Spirit is not it. The Holy Spirit's not a force. To be, it's not the power of God. The Holy Spirit is he. You say, well, why? Holy Spirit, that's, that's, that's a, a weird description or maybe you're used to probably what the, 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 the problematic uh, older English description, the Holy Ghost. Think, think of the Holy Spirit like a name. His name. It's the Father, there's the Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not an it, the Holy Spirit is He. He is the third person of the Trinity. If the Father is the one who, who leads the plan of redemption, Jesus is the person of the Trinity who goes and accomplishes the plan of redemption. Just like in the Father's heart was birthed the plan of creation, Jesus is the one who carries out that act of creation. But who's the one at creation who breathes life into everything? The Holy Spirit. So in our salvation, who is the one when you and I respond to the redemption that Jesus Christ brings? Who is the one who brings that redemption into our life, who takes the blood of Jesus and washes us clean, who regenerates us and takes us from one who is by nature a sinner to who is by nature Christ's righteousness, who is the one who comes and seals the eternal whole in our heart forever, the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who lives inside each one of us who are in Christ, who enables us and empowers us to live the Christian life. So if we mess up understanding who the Holy Spirit is, understand the consequence, we will mess up living and experiencing the Christian life as God intends. Believe in the Holy Spirit. But look what else is in here is non-negotiables. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, when you see Catholic there, it's a little C, not a big C. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church that has a pope in Rome. Catholic is just simply an old English word that means universal. It means the church of all the saints who believe in Jesus Christ. That's all that means. The church of all, all the men and women, boys and girls, who have believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls for all time. That's what, it's a word that means universal. So we're talking about the one true church that Jesus in his in his death, you see places like Ephesians 4 talk about this, 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus, God didn't just save us to, all right, great, you're saved, but he, he saves us and brings us into a family, his family, to make us a people. There's a purpose behind our redemption, and it, and it changes. It's not just an individualistic thing. Then look what it says, the forgiveness of sins. We would see this enumerated and, and explained in places like Romans chapter 3, that that here's the problem. What's the problem with humanity? We were created in the image of God, but what's the problem? We chose sin and sin broke the relationship with God and it has distorted like a cracked mirror our ability to, to, to bear the image of God. We still bear it, but it's broken, crying out for wholeness. Why? Because of sin. There is forgiveness of sin. How? Not by saying, God saying, well, I'm not gonna punish sin. I just love you so much. We're just gonna act like it didn't happen. That's not what God did. God said, I love you so much that I'm going to send the one and all of reality 
whom my love is perfect for and whom loves me perfectly, the Son, the one and only unique Son. By the way, just remember, John 3.16 is one and only begotten Son. That's a horrible English translation because begotten to us means born. That's not what the word means in Greek. It's monogenes, meaning one and only, unique, one of a kind, no other in all reality. And that's what Jesus is. There is no other in all reality who is fully God and fully man, the one and only Son. And it says in Romans chapter 3 that or we'll look at Friday night, it says that God made Jesus to become our sin. Our sin was not overlooked. It was, it was punished. Wes Wilkinson deserves eternal hell. And eternal hell was poured out on Wes's sin because Jesus became my sin and bore it for me. Have I still committed those acts? Yeah, I have. Do I experience some spiritual discipline when that happens? Yeah. God's correction in my life? Yeah. Or sometimes there's some earthly consequences depending on the nature of, of what the sin has been in my life? Sure, but that doesn't have to do with God's righteous judgment falling upon it. That I'll never know a single drop because Jesus became my sin so that I might become his righteousness, the ability to stand in right standing with God in his glory in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, that you and I who believe in Christ, whose sins have been forgiven, when we die, we don't just live eternally as disembodied spirits. Listen, if God wanted a disembodied existence, he never would have created the physical universe. The physical universe is good from the sense of God wants, God, God delights in physical creation. God delights that we steward creation well. God delights that we take care of the temple. You know what he calls the temple? The temple of God in which the holy of holies, the high priest, if he, if he did one little thing wrong, would be struck dead the one day of the year he was allowed to go in there. Our physical body is that holy of holies for the Holy Spirit. God cares about how we treat our bodies. Now we can... Worship our bodies, that's inappropriate. But God cares that we steward, why? Because physical creation is there. How do we know that? Because the culmination of all of the story is us receiving a resurrection body that is just like Christ's in which we will live forever in a physical and perfect creation. And by the way, I've said this before, the church believes, the early church believed that that resurrection body, you would look uh, what you should look like at a, in a perfect existence at 33 because that's when Jesus died. And if your body's like Jesus, well, if he was 33, you'll be 33. So, and then look, it says life everlasting. So here there is clear doctrine revealed in scripture that God is not anybody I want to make God up to being. Uh, I saw somebody who quoted the other day in their argument for their gender identity, they called, uh, they called uh, God her. Of course, which is ironic, right? Because if you want to respect someone's pronouns, there's never a time in all of Scripture where God doesn't clearly say his pronouns are he and him. So there's a little bit of irony there. But understand, it doesn't matter what you say God is. God is only who he says he is. There is a clear doctrine there is a clear truth about Jesus. Early on in the church, there were different questions. Well, how divine is Jesus? And some said, well, Jesus is only like God. He's not actually God, he's like God. And he was created, but he was created before all creation. That's several of the cults. In Mormonism, Jesus is, uh, is a birthed being between God the Father, who was once a man, so who created God the Father, that's a question, and the Heavenly Mother. And Jehovah's Witness, uh, Jesus is Jehovah's first creation. Understand that is a basic heretical point that has birthed multiple cults. Jesus is not created. He is God, always has been, always will be. It's clear in scripture. It's clear that not only has he always been God, but he took on real humanity. Some would say, well, Jesus only appeared human. I didn't appear human. He is human. Which means subsequently, because if he's not human, he can't, when it comes to paying the price for our sin, he can't represent us. 
The high priest has to be of the people he represents. A Jesus who isn't fully human cannot represent humanity. He can't do it. It violates the rules, the way God operates. There's clear doctrine here. That tells us who God is, tells us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a force, which also means if the Holy Spirit's not a force, the Holy Spirit has a will and you and I don't control it. Of course, the Holy Spirit's will is the Father's will because they are in harmony in how they also... Here's the deal. When you, when you and I understand things, humanity being created by God, the fact that we're, there is a church that, that is made up of all uh, men and women, boys and girls who believed in Christ, there is a communion, a fellowship of saints. The forgiveness of sins is real, which means that sin is a real thing that separates from God and really must be dealt with. You go on these basic, clear doctrinal truths that are there. These will allow, if you and I are grounded in what is clear, it becomes a lot easier. Listen, I don't know everything there is to know about Mormonism. I don't. Had a, had a, a guy asked me, hey, I'm, I'm ministering to some Mormons, and I'm like, well, I'll have to see some resources I can pick up because in my ministry, I just haven't had a lot of run into a lot of Mormons. Had a lot of run in with a lot of Hindus, some Muslims. Just for whatever reason, the context I've been in, you, you just haven't been around a lot of Mormons. But I don't have to know everything about Mormonism for a Mormon to tell me what they believe in me to go, well, you're wrong in the most loving way possible. Because God the Father wasn't a man who became God and achieved Godhood. God has always been God. And you can't separate the Father and the Son and the Spirit because God is Trinity, triune, one God, singular. And Jesus isn't a created, right? If I know the main thing, then if I get confronted with somebody of another religion or who's speaking something different, then I can be very secure to just ask questions. Well, what do you believe on that? Well, who do you say Jesus is? Well, irony being, right, any world, any worldview you find, they have an opinion on Jesus. You can always, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus? If you know the main thing, you can pick these things out. I'll just give you a simple, I already mentioned Jehovah's Witness. They believe God's not triune, but a singular person. He's one being, but also a singular person. Uh, Jesus is his first creation. Jesus was actually Michael before he came to earth. He died on a stake, not a cross, and he was resurrected as a spirit, not a body. Uh, Mormonism, Jesus was created as a spirit child by the father and the mother uh, via sexual union, and his, his uh, evil twin brother is Satan. Uh, in the New Age worldview, everything and everyone and everything is God. It's an impersonal force, so people discover their power within. Therefore, Jesus is a spiritual model. He's a guru, a New Ager who was ahead of his time. In Islam, Allah, God is one. The greatest sin is associating anyone or anything with God. So you can't even say God is Father because that's to associate something human to God. Now, understand the misdirect of that. Because we may be prone to think of God when we hear him as Father on the basis of our human father. No, 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 no. We don't judge God as Father on the basis of what we understand fatherhood to be. We judge fatherhood to be on the basis of how God shows us to Father. Which means if you're a dad in the room, your standard for fatherhood is found in how you see Jesus, Father, creation, and his children. How you see the Father, sorry, I got my words mixed up there. Uh, Hinduism, God is absolute, universal spirit. Everybody's part of God. Okay, well, if you hear that, you go, well, I know that's not true. Everybody's not part of God. Everybody's one distinct from God. We're not God. And there's, again, you go on and on and on. And so all of this doctrine, what this does is this produces clear truth that if you and I know, know we can pick out what's false or not false. And here's what this clear doctrine also produces. And I'm I, intentionally not spending a lot of time on this tonight, just as we come here to the end. It reveals a clear doctrine, which when believed, transforms our life into a fulfilling and satisfied existence, or to use the biblical term, gives us eternal life. It transforms, and what I mean by transform is every area of our life, whether it's our theology, what we believe about God, whether it's our philosophy, how we see reality, whether it's our ethics, what's morally right and wrong, whether it's our biology, how did we get here, what do we believe about the physical universe, whether it's psychology, how do we understand the mind and what goes on, whether it's sociology and the issues of society, whether it's law, whether it's government politics, whether it's economics, whether it's history, every category of our life is found in Scripture 
and is transformed by the clear doctrine Scripture reveals. It is transformed in every way to the way God intends it to be. There, is, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Not all things are right. Actions matter and judgment is based on actions. What is right is right only because it's in line with God. When we live out the righteous life far from being a, a, a drag, it is fulfilling and joyful and brings harmony. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean there aren't hard things to walking righteously. Absolutely there are. If we walk righteously, one of the hard things is we're going to suffer by a world who hates righteousness. If we walk righteously, God's going to convict us of those parts of our heart that aren't walking in line with righteousness. And sometimes from an emotional standpoint, conviction is not fun. But when yielded to and surrendered to God's loving discipline, Hebrews 12 in our life, oh, it is good and produces the fruit of righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience. So the story reveals the doctrine, which when believed leads to a transformed life. And you see this pattern all throughout the New Testament epistles, Ephesians being a real simple example. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about doctrine. And then you hit this pivot point at chapter 4, the first word of which is, therefore. And chapter 4, 5, and 6 are all the practical, ethical application of the doctrine. Same thing, the book of Romans, the book that if you're a diehard, systematic person, you love the book of Romans. And if you're a, wow, th those big words scare me, you don't ever want to touch the book of Romans. Here's the interesting thing about the book of Romans. Did you know in the book of Romans, there is not a single command until halfway through chapter 6. There are five and a half chapters of the book of Romans, not a single command to do anything. Instead, it's five and a half chapters telling us the nature of reality humanity being broken and enslaved to sin, the reality of what God has done to correct the problem, how that solution can be brought into our lives by grace through faith, and how that's always been the way God intended to it as he begins to answer the objections. And the very first thing you and I are told to do after being told that if we've placed faith in Christ, our identity has been completely and totally transformed. We're no longer individuals that now have the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other shoulder, and we got to pick between which one. We are completely and totally transformed anew. We've been made righteous. Our identity is no longer that of a sinner. It's that of a son and daughter. The first commandment in the whole book of Romans is reckon yourselves. Meaning, in your mind, you go back and do the reaccounting and you rest yourself completely and totally on this fact which is true. And it's on the basis of that reckoning that he will then come and say, out of that, crucify the deeds of the flesh. But a lot of times we miss that. We try to crucify the deeds of the flesh before we reckon. Here's my whole point. This is the pattern of Scripture. There is a clear story. Creation, fall, redemption. A God who, out of the great goodness and love of His heart, created an entire universe, the pinnacle of which and the foremost of which are beings made in His image that He designed to exist in a perfect, harmonious, loving relationship with Him. Creation. Beings who... When the serpent showed up and twisted that which is true, quoting and misquoting and misapplying God himself, tricked into falling into rebellion. That relationship with God broken. That bearing the image of God not removed, but distorted. And we see the full ramifications that within one generation, we go from eating a piece of fruit to cold-blooded premeditated murder. The fall. And then we see on the grand scale of history, 
God move and orchestrate events to reveal himself perfectly to human beings. All enacting his plan of redemption, which in the fullness of time at the right moment 2,000 years ago happened when a little baby born of a virgin in a supernatural way Live grew up to live the life you and I can't live, revealing himself to be fully God and fully man, who died the death you and I deserve, who rose from the grave, who is alive today, sitting at the right hand of God to offer that salvation and solution to all of humanity, and who is coming back to set all things right for the final time. This story reveals a clear doctrine about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons. About those who are saved by God, adopted as sons or daughters, forming the church. How our sins can be forgiven. Our future hope and eternal life. And how when that is believed, what it produces in us is a transformed life that this world can't touch. And that shines like a beacon in the midst of this world. There is a cohesive story that reveals a clear doctrine that when believed leads to a transformed, fulfilling, satisfying life. And if we know in those categories, if we commit ourselves to know what is true, and remember what I said Sunday, knowing is not just having a bunch of head facts. It's not just knowing it here. It's knowing it where it actually is lived out by faith in tangible action in everyday life. Listen, I can know Jesus is in control and I shouldn't worry about tomorrow, but it's one thing for me to know that verse. It's another thing for me to daily give up my anxiety because he's in control and I'm not supposed to live and worry over tomorrow, right? There's a difference between those two things. We've got to do both. And if we commit in walking in that, Remember what we said Sunday. Our hope is not, that, okay, we got to do all of that. And if we do all of that, then maybe we've got a shot to make it to the end. No, no, no. That, that's a really hopeless, frightening way to live if it all depends on me. Because I'm pretty frail and I can, I can miss something. I can overlook something. I, I can be tricked. No, my hope is not that I can present myself before his throne blameless and filled with joy. But my hope is that the one who came out of love, who lived and breathed and died in my place, who sits exalted at the right hand of God, he is actively working out the salvation in my life. He is the one who can keep me from stumbling. My job isn't to make the path. My job is just to trust him and follow him on the path. He's the one who gives me the strength to walk the path. He's the one who can keep me from stumbling and present me in his presence, not prostrated, not hiding my eyes like even the righteous angels, but standing without any speck of defect and with joy. That's our hope. It doesn't depend upon all of us. It depends upon him. And because we're confident of who he is, then we contend for the faith by, building our, by keeping ourselves in the love of Christ part of which is making sure we build ourselves, root ourselves in the most holy faith. So there you go. It took us about 40 minutes to try to give you as simplistic of an overview over, over basic truth that Scripture says. Um, this is where we're at. This is where we've got to be, especially in light of where we're at today uh, as a culture and the nature of stuff that is running around. I appreciate your church family. Be in prayer. Just continued for open doors this, this week for favor with people as we're inviting. Um, and just don't, don't ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit if he leads you to go invite somebody or talk to somebody. Um, I saw a stat today, 80% of Americans will come to church on Easter if someone invites them. 80%. Sure is sad if people don't come because we don't invite them. We're going to have a good time Friday as we remember what Jesus has done on the cross, and we're going to have a fun time Sunday morning as we look at the reality of Christ's resurrection and how it transforms everything in 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, be in prayer, though, because people aren't going to get saved because we're super creative and super nice. They're going to get saved because they encounter the real living Jesus Christ. And we want to be right in line with his movement. So let me pray to close us out. Love you, church family. Appreciate your prayer. And um, uh, we will, uh, whatever I tell Mike every Sunday, let's go charge the gates. We'll go charge the gates. 
Jesus, thank you that you make it all so clear. It is kind of comical, Lord, that the best book I've ever seen on the Trinity is written for a four-year-old. Because Jesus, you tell us that if we're gonna follow you, we gotta follow you like a child. So Jesus, find us to be a church full of mature children who gladly yield themselves as clay in your hands, who recognize that the purpose of all creation is to be loved by you and to respond to you for your glory. Lord, may we know your love and may we live for your glory. May truly your joy be what gives us strength. May we live with a keen awareness of your presence in our everyday life. Jesus, what a joy to be yours. And I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters in this room watching on Zoom who will listen afterwards, who aren't able to be here, aren't watching on Zoom tonight, what every one of my brothers and sisters in our church. May they know what is the overwhelming, surpassing joy of being yours. Father, you open doors and you move in us and you move through us beyond what we can control and can ever dream. And we just ask, Lord, for our community for whom we have an obligation to share that you would do a work that only you can do and we would see a great awakening and a harvest of men and women and boys and girls coming to know you. Father, that your courts in heaven would be filled with resounding praise as they celebrate the lost in our lives and community coming to faith in you. But Lord, we just acknowledge We've got a part to play. But if you don't move, it won't happen. So Father, may we play our part as clay in your hands. Not in hopes that we can do it, but in total hopes that your heart is to do it. Jesus, we look to you. And in a world that is incredibly discouraging, May we learn how to walk with you in joy, not fear. And the confidence of a small child who runs into the throne room of their father with boldness and confidence. Thank you for letting us be family for such a time as this. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.